morning, Redeemer family. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning and to be on the, up here at the pulpit. For those of you that are visitors, I'm not the normal preacher. Today we will be in Isaiah chapter 10. While you're turning there, I'll just share with you that I'm grateful for the men, men that God has equipped this church with, not only in Brett, who's our normal, our regular preacher, but also for the elders and the teachers in our uh, discipleship class. Uh, we have a, uh, uh, just a rich arsenal of men that God has equipped uh, this church with. Many times I have fretted that I might get tasked with this, and I feel uh, that I might not be up to par, but uh, we'll see what the Lord has in store for us. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are sovereign over all creation. Lord, we pray that you will call our hearts to be attentive to your will and to your working in our lives. And Lord, that we will be humble as we go about doing your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 10, I'm starting in verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the Lord, or the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil, to seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karshemesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Syria like Damascus? And my... As my hand has reached into the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and to her idols, as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by my strength I have done it. By my end I have done it. By my wisdom, for I have understanding. I have removed the boundaries of the people and plundered their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. As one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Here's what God says in response to the Assyrian king. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, when the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire, the light of Israel will become a fire, and his Holy One a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest will, uh, and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child could write them down. In that day, the remnant of the Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'm the sort of fellow that thinks that you get out of the thing what you put into it. If you want to understand a book, if you want to get good things out of the book... Put good questions to that book. The better your questions, the better your answers. 
first time I came across this passage many years ago, I thought to myself, huh, one of those weird prophecy things, and just kept on going. Didn't get anything out of it. <clears throat> that was a long time ago. But as I got older, this passage, and there are several others like this throughout the Bible, started to perplex me. I believe that God has given us his word as inspired, as inerrant and infallible, and my task is to interpret it and implement it properly. But if I don't interpret it or implement it properly, how can I expect to gain from the word of God? So this passage presented a challenge to me. How is it that God can command the king of Assyria to do a wicked thing like demolish other nations? That's wicked, isn't it? And how can God then punish the king for doing what God commanded him to do in the first place? Doesn't that make God himself morally culpable for the sins of the king of Assyria? You see, in our society, if I get a gun and I go down and I rob a bank, the cops will catch me and throw me in jail, and that follows. I did the crime, I do the time. Even if I distance myself from that a little bit, if I sit in the car and I pay Bob to go in and rob the bank, the cop's going to throw both of us in jail. Or even if I step back even further and I stay at home watching TV, but I pay a guy to sit in the car and drive it to the bank and pay another guy to go and rob the bank, I still get thrown into jail. That's how our society works. And it's not just our society. We even see that in, in the, uh, ancient Israel. Exodus chapter 21, we read that if an Israelite had an ox that was known to gore people and kill people, and if that man doesn't secure his beast properly, if his ox escapes and goes and gores and kills someone, not only do you put the animal down, but the man is on the hook and his life is forfeit for what amounts to negligent homicide. So the Bible is very well familiar with the idea of culpability running up and down the chain of cause and effect. If a domino falls at this end, the person who pushed the domino over on this end is culpable. So why isn't that happening with God here? I decided to take my good questions to a man that knew a lot about the Bible and asked him to help me make sense of this passage. He looked at it, flipped over a few pages and said, here's what you need to know, son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe in this? I said, yes. How does that connect to Isaiah chapter 10? He says, well, we don't worry about Isaiah chapter 10. That's in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. Praise God. I didn't find that answer very compelling. I asked another man. This, one, this guy had been a teacher of the Bible for 30 years. He was an elder at a church. Not this church, at another church. I said, what do you make of this chapter? He looked at it and he said, you know... I don't know what's going on in this chapter, but I can tell you this. It doesn't mean what it says. If we study all of Scripture, we know that God doesn't behave this way. So I don't know what's going on here, but that it doesn't mean what it says. I said, what does it mean? He says, I don't know. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are above ours. When we get to glory, he'll explain it to us. I considered that a dead end as well. I asked a third man. He knew this passage well, and he asked me, well, what does it say? I said, well, I'm paraphrasing here, but I see that God is sending this wicked king of Assyria, a foreigner to Israel, sending him as the army of his, and his army as a rod of correction to punish Israel. The king thinks he's doing it all under his own steam. He looks at his track record of destroying all these other cities, and he figures it'll be a piece of cake to knock over Jerusalem. And he's bragging and full of pride, and God comes and says to him, no, you're a tool in my hand. I'm going to wield you about however I want. And when I'm finished using you to punish Israel, I'm then going to punish you for your arrogance and your pride and for the devastation that you've done. And then I see that God uh, blesses his people and he secures the land for them and he pours out blessings on them and he restores his remnant. This man said, right, that's exactly what it means. 
On one hand, I appreciate the idea of the Bible meaning what it says. It's hard for me to look favorably on someone who would rather bury his, sands in script, or bury his head in scriptures that are pleasing to him and ignore passages that aren't pleasing. But this still presents a bit of a problem. I said, does this sound right to you for God to command a person to do something evil and then hold this person culpable for doing that evil thing and punish him? He said, well, what does the Bible say? Not just here, but in other places. So this sent me searching to find out what's going on here. To appreciate what's going on in Isaiah chapter 10, we do need a historical perspective, so a brief history of Israel would be in order. At the foot of Mount Sinai, the newly formed nation of Israel received commandments from God on how they would conduct themselves, and uh, Moses lays out for them in Leviticus chapter 26 some guidelines and, and things that would happen to them if they obeyed and things that, would not ha- or things that would happen to them if they disobeyed. It's really important that we read this because this chapter becomes a roadmap, a cliff notes, if you will, of everything that's going to happen to the nation of Israel historically for the next couple thousand years. In, in Leviticus chapter 10, we see 10, 10, 11 verses of all this prosperity and blessing that God would pour out on them if they, were, if they obeyed him. They would get rain, their crops would be plentiful, they'd have lots of children, they'd have peace with their neighbors, no affliction from wild beasts, one of their guys would chase 10 of their enemies, etc., etc., etc. 11 verses of all this good stuff. But if they didn't obey him, if they weren't faithful to him, we see 26 verses of woes, calamities, and bad stuff poured out on them for their disobedience. He would cut off their bread. His soul would abhor them, verse 30. Verse 25, he would bring their enemies against them. I will lay your cities to waste. I will bring the land to desolation. Uh, So much so that your enemies would be astonished. On and on and on. 26 verses of what would happen to them if they didn't obey God. And the solution that Moses gives them, even in that passage, is not to knuckle down and try even harder to obey the law. They couldn't. It was simply impossible. In verses 40 through 45, he says that their solution lie in having their hearts circumcised. Something that, hand, uh, that human hands cannot do. This would be a work of the Holy Spirit that was done in their lives. As they moved on from Mount Sinai, uh, they refused, because they refused to go in and conquer the land, they're punished by having to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness. The first generation dies off. The second generation is now ready to go into the land under the leadership of Joshua. And Moses repeats the same thing in Leviticus 26 that he does to this new generation in Deuteronomy 28. But this time he goes into a little bit more detail. We have the same 14 verses of all these good blessings that pour out them if they obey, followed by 54 verses of curses, woes, and calamities poured out on them by God if they would disobey. Verse 16, you would be cursed in your city, cursed in your country, cursed in your basket, cursed in the fruit of your body, on and on. And like in Leviticus 26, we see Moses giving them the solution for what, why they were not able to obey God. He says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, he says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. This idea of not having a heart to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear, is the same idea that Moses spoke of earlier, and it's something that goes all the way through the Bible. It even shows up in Isaiah, in chapter 6, as part of Isaiah's commission that he receives from God, where the eyes, the ears, and the heart are going to be affected by the gospel We see this same chapter from Isaiah chapter 6 is mentioned over and over again in the New Testament. It's in each one of the Gospels. It's in Acts. It's in Romans. It's in Corinthians. On and on. Might make you think it's an important passage. 
If we look at these passages as a road map for the nation of Israel, then we would understand that this should not be any surprise that God is sending in their enemies to punish them. God said that he would do it. Despite the Israelites' frequent superficial commitment to obey God, they steadfastly refuse to obey Him on a permanent basis. God sends a series of prophets warning them that they need to repent. And finally, Isaiah comes on the scene, and his message is a little different. Not only does he call them to repent, but he now says, we're done. The Assyrians are going to come in, they're going to destroy us. The Babylons later on are going to come in, and they're going to uh, take us captive. Uh, They had reached critical mass, if you will. Well, that, takes, that gives us a, a historical thumb, net, thumb scale. Um, uh, that gives us a brief history of Israel up to this point. Uh, we won't get much into a serious history because the Bible doesn't spend much time on it, uh, so I won't either. But rest assured, they are real people in real places doing real things. If you ever get a chance to go to London, swing by the British Museum, they have on display there some of King Sennacherib's boasts as he conquered uh, different cities uh, throughout, uh, throughout the Middle East. Um, and, uh, and his siege is described later on in Isaiah chapter 37. It's also in 2 Kings chapter 18, 2 Chronicles 32. Ghastly guy. You should see all the things that he boasts of. <clears throat> so that takes care of the historical uh, perspective of what brings these two kingdoms together in Isaiah chapter 10. How about the moral dilemma? Is it right for God to punish people by using other wicked nations? Is it right for God to bring wicked activity through wicked people and then hold those people culpable for those sins? Let's take these questions one at a time, starting with the idea of God bringing judgment on people and see what the Bible has to say about this. If we start in Genesis and just start reading forward, how far do we have to go before we see God bringing judgment on people? Three chapters. We see Adam and Eve falling into sin and God bringing death to all men. This is later on explained in a little bit more detail in Romans chapter 5. This problem of sin and death is perplexing to not just Adam and Eve, not just to Assyrians and Israel, but to all of us. And the Bible is preoccupied with laying out the solution for that. We'll get to more of that a little bit later on. If we continue past Genesis chapter 3, a few chapters later we see God using water to bring devastation, to bring judgment on the entire earth, destroying every living human except for eight in Noah's Ark. Fast forward a few more chapters, we'll see the Trinity acting in concert using fire and brimstone this time to bring judgment on, divine judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18, 16 on following verses, the Lord states that his actions as a righteous judge are to be an example to Abraham so that Abraham would teach his offspring how the Lord behaves towards sin. In Exodus chapter 7 through 12, we see 10 unique plagues, each one designed to systematically decimate the Egyptian pantheon of idols, whether it's water to blood, infestation of frogs and lice, livestock disease, boils, darkness, uh, even the killing of the firstborn son. Each of these were specifically targeted at the religious system of the Egyptians so that, and this comes from Exodus chapter 9 verse 16, so that the world would know that I am God. We know that God, not only is God God, but he does not share his glory with another. We mentioned some of that in our worship time earlier today. Isaiah 42, 8 says it explicitly. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. I will not give my praise to idols. Speaking of the world knowing that God is God, here's an interesting bit of trivia. For all the movies and documentaries that Hollywood would make about the Bible, their number one story is the life of Christ. You know what their number two story is? Moses and the Exodus. They don't often get it right, but 
Two chapters later, uh, after the Exodus, we see water again being used by God to drown Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. In number 16, we see God opening up the ground to swallow Korah and any of the Israelites who would said contend against Moses. In Numbers 21, we see God sending serpents in the desert to punish the rebellious Israelites and the bronze serpent being lifted up as a means of their salvation. There's a brilliant type of Christ to come. If we put Leviticus 20 together with Genesis 15 and Deuteronomy 9, we see that God uses Joshua's sword to bring judgment uh, to punish the seven Canaanite nations for their wickedness. These are just a few examples, and we've barely even gotten out of the first five books of the Bible. If we run all the way to the end of the Bible, we'll see that God uses fire again to destroy the entire world, 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 19. The consistent pattern throughout Scripture is this. If we have sin in our lives, and all of us do, God can and will use whatever means he chooses in order to bring about his judgment. Whether the people in question are Israelites, whether they're Canaanites, whether they're Egyptians, whether they're Babylonians, whether they're Assyrians, yes, even if they're American. He judges when he chooses, by whatever method he chooses, according to his will, his timing, and his choosing. This divine freedom and divine prerogative also brings our only escape from judgment, and that's through the Son, Jesus Christ. What about the question of punishing human agency sins? Do we see other places in the Bible where this is done? The answer is not just yes, it is a resounding yes. A classic case study would be found in Exodus chapter 4 through 12, where we see God's sovereignty at work in the heart of Pharaoh. Before Moses even gets to Egypt to demonstrate his divine miraculous signs that God has equipped him with, we see God meeting Moses along the way in a huddle, if you will, where God is informing Moses about their game plan, drawing it out in the sand, if you will. If someone asked me to make a movie, my, using my artistic license, it might have something like this, where God and Moses are in a huddle, and God says, okay, here's what we'll do. I'm the rock, you're the stick, and Pharaoh's the grass. Now, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here, but I do want to create in our ideas that, or in our minds the idea that God is assigning roles for who's going to do what. Listen to how it reads in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, this is before Moses gets to Egypt, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say... Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. You have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Here we see God giving Moses specific instructions on what to tell Pharaoh publicly, yet behind the scenes, completely unbeknownst to Pharaoh, we see God working in Pharaoh's heart so that he won't obey God. And then God punishes Pharaoh for not obeying God. Now, many people will try and attempt to defend God and get him off the hook by saying, well, that's not really what's going on. If you put these chapters in a timeline, you'll see that, ch that in chapter 7, Pharaoh is first hardening his heart, and God is just giving him more of what he did. I don't really see that as a satisfactory answer. First of all, we're diminishing the glory and sovereignty of God if we reduce him to a cosmic butler. God is not the kind of person who can only merely respond to what we do first. That's not the God that we see in the Bible. Besides, there are many evil characters in the Bible who were saved by the grace of God. People like Paul the Apostle. He was running around capturing and, and uh, putting Christians in jail and killing them. And yet, God didn't further harden his heart. God saved him. Additionally, in chapter 4, where God states his objectives in hardening Pharaoh's heart, 
That precedes chapter 7, where Pharaoh's heart is, is hardened. So an honest assessment of this entire narrative will consider the ramifications of chapter 4 before we get to chapter 7. Thirdly, this explanation sidesteps God's intention as he states it in chapter 4, verse 23. God said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let people, God's people go. So we can't dismiss God's stated intentions. It was God's intention that Pharaoh not let his people go until God was good and ready for Pharaoh to let his people go. And if we insist on looking at who acted first, we need to consider Psalms 105.25, where in giving a brief history of the people of Israel, the psalmist says, quote, God turned their hearts to hate his people. In that scenario, God acted first. In fact, in the rest of the Bible, any time that we see Pharaoh being mentioned in this conflict between Pharaoh and Moses, the Bible always says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So we should too. Now we could go into greater detail in our analysis of these chapters in Exodus, but I trust the point has been sufficiently made. God's sovereignty over all the earth includes God's sovereignty over the hearts of men, yes, even over Pharaoh's heart, even when it involves actions for which they are to be punished. And as you might imagine, Exodus isn't the only place where we see God's sovereignty over the hearts of men. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it whatever way he wills. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, who had been punished for his pride in thinking of, that he had built this Babylonian empire all by his own strength, God punished him. And listen to what he says in Daniel chapter 4. He says, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, speaking of God, and praised him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can say to him, can, no one can stay back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all of his works. Listen to this. All of his works are right, and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble that's from Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 37. Now those are examples from the Old Testament. How about something from the New Testament? After all, I have some friends who say God doesn't work like that in the, anymore. That was just the Old Testament. What does the Bible say in the New Testament? It goes without saying that the greatest sin, bar none, in the entire history of humanity, the most heinous and wicked act, was the crucifixion of the Messiah. The Son of God, holy without sin... Walking among men, yet taken, beaten to a pulp, whipped within an inch of his life, hung on a tree in open, naked shame. Can, it, can you possibly get any more wicked than that? Even Hitler with his six million Jews or 20 million war victims, Stalin, Mao, none of these guys compare to that. We're talking about killing the holy God. We know that God knows all things and we know that God knew the death of Christ as foretold by the prophets, but did God plan the death of Christ? Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, Peter, being full of the Holy Spirit, mind you, stands up and says, Men of Israel, now hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man tested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And again, a couple chapters later, Peter, when praying for boldness uh, with the, the uh, saints, says, the, he starts by quoting Psalms chapter 2. He says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. Brett mentioned this last week. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined it to take place. Specific actors, all of them, wicked men, carrying out God's predestined, definite plan. I actually talked with a Bible teacher who was a teacher taught for 40 years in a conservative church, and he said, no, this was not the plan of God. God would never do that. I have to wonder if we're talking about the same plan. That's what it says, repeatedly. And not only was this planned by God, but this was pleasing to God. Later on here in our text in Isaiah, in chapter 53, we see, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, the chastisement that was, brought us peace was laid on him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later on in the same chapter it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Father, has put him, the Son, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, the Father, shall see his offspring and shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There are more passages that we could go to that repeat the same motif. We're obligated to conclude that the crucifixion of Christ was not only the predestined plan of God, but that God was pleased to bring it about. And were these human characters morally culpable for their actions and their evil deed? Absolutely. Even Judas is on the hook. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, Jesus says about himself, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, meaning that he's going to be going to the cross, just as the prophets foretold. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man betrayed. That's Judas. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. If you want to read up more on what God thinks of Judas' part in all of this, read Psalms 109. In Acts chapter 1, Peter says that this psalm is about him. Again, there are other examples that we can draw from Scripture, but the consistent pattern that we see is this. God ordains the actions of men, yes, even the conditions of their heart. Men, not God, are culpable for the sins of men. God can and will make every proud man humble one day. God is free and just to punish man for his sins. Now, there may be a more theologically polished way to phrase it, but this is the undeniable, consistent pattern to see, that we see all throughout Scripture. God ordains the plan. Man is culpable for the actions. God is just to judge. Yes, even here in Isaiah 10, this is exactly what we're saying. At first pass, this would cause us to recoil. It certainly makes me recoil. And it's only natural that we demand an explanation. What about man's autonomy? What about man's freedom to, and his ability to make his own choices in his own life? Well, let's look at what Isaiah chapter 10 has to say about this. Look at how God responds to the prideful boast of the king of Assyria who thought that he did all these things himself. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? I'm reading in verse 15. 
Shall the saw magnifies itself against him who wields it? As if a rod could wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff could lift him who is not wood. Do you get the impression that maybe God isn't particularly impressed with a king's sense of autonomy and freedom to direct his life the way he sees fit? I think Isaiah is making this point in four different ways for knuckleheads like myself to get the picture of what's going on. The axe does not take credit for how the person swinging the axe decides how to swing it. The saw doesn't tell the one who's sawing with it how he needs to go about doing his business, nor can the saw brag on how great of a cut he made. He is a tool in the hands of the master. A rod is nothing more than a stick. It can't even lift itself up. Why on earth should it think that it can lift up the one who's lifting him up? This great king of Assyria, for all of his great strength and abilities, is nothing more than a tool in the hand of the king of all kings. Nebuchadnezzar got it right. Who are we, finite, feeble men, to tell an omniscient, omnipotent, holy God how he ought to order his universe? We dare not lose sight of the pride of man here. In fact, it's one of the main points that I want to bring out. You see, the arrogant heart of the king of Syria was deeply offensive to God. In this case, we see in verse 12 that the arrogant heart of the Assyrian king is what yields the fruit of his imperialistic destruction of Israel. So a good question we can ask at this point. How is it possible for a military leader to gauge an unprovoked military attack on foreign lands and to do so without pride? I doubt Vladimir Putin's objectives in Crimea are without pride. And you can rest assured that pride motivated Hitler to expand all his footprint all over Egypt. I hardly believe that the Japanese were being humble as they were bombing Pearl Harbor. And I don't recall anyone in ancient Greece named Alexander the Humble. So is it possible for someone to invade foreign lands in a humble way? Absolutely, I would say. Joshua would be an excellent case study in humble, obedient military warfare. And there are several reasons why I would put this forward. Number one, Joshua and his men were obeying God. Now, if you know anything about history, you'll say, oh, come on, Tim. Everybody, every military leader tells their people that they're doing it for God and country. Even Hitler told his guys that they were doing this for God. ISIS tells their soldiers that they're fighting for their God. But stick with me, and you'll see that Joshua's doing things that neither of these guys would ever do. Remember Rahab the harlot and how she hid the Israelite spies in Joshua chapter 2? In verses 9 through, 10 through 11, she says that she had heard how the Lord had worked against Pharaoh in the Red Sea. God wanted that story to get out across the whole world, right? She knew that Jericho was doomed. And in asking the spies for safety, she was in a very real sense running to the arms of Joshua to find safety from the sword of Joshua. Brett talked about this concept last week. We run to the salvation of Christ now in order to escape the judgment of Christ to come. And Rahab is doing the exact same thing here. But ask yourself a question. If Joshua and his men were bloodthirsty warmongers, why would the spies agree to her request? If I were making a movie about this story, and you'll have to forgive my sense of imagination, I would depict this scene like this. One of the spies would say, "Uh, Miss, Miss, uh, tell you what, excuse me for a minute, Bob, a word please. What on earth are you doing talking to this woman trying to make a deal with her? Have you lost your mind? We've been given explicit orders by God to destroy all these Canaanites and she's a Canaanite. Number two, she's a woman. How are we supposed to live that down? We go back to the camp, oh yeah, some woman helped us out. That's not going to go over well. And number three, she's a prostitute. Do you not know what God says about prostitutes? I can hear my mother now. 
These spies had no way of contacting Joshua and radioing back for further instructions. If they were bloodthirsty conquerors, maybe they might make a deal with her to save their skin, but they would turn back and they would destroy her. Look at the kind of woman she is. Yet Joshua honored their, con- their agreement with her, and they knew that Joshua would honor their agreement with her. Why? I would submit that the only reason why is because they were humbly doing the will of God. Joshua and his men were the kind of men who would give mercy when repentance were sought. God-fearing men and women resonate with Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has already shown you, O man, what the Lord requires of you. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. This is true of all God-fearing women all throughout the Bible, from Adam to you and me. Do justice. For Joshua, this meant bringing the sword of judgment against the Canaanites, as God told him to do. Love mercy. Whenever repentance is sought, mercy is poured out in abundance. And walk humbly. A man after God's own heart will be humble. And I think that's exactly what we see going on here. We see another example of Joshua's humble love uh, for mercy in chapter 9 with the Gibeonites. That's the story where the men dress up as foreigners who travel a long distance and they fool Joshua into signing a peace contract. Ask yourself a question. Since we know the Gibeonite people had a collection of well-fortified cities, how did these guys come to think up this harebrained plan in the first place? What made them think it would work? If I were making a movie, here's how I would depict it. The king would sit there with all of his mayors from his different cities, and he'd say, men and I have called this war council together, because surely by now you've heard how Joshua and his men utterly destroyed the pharaoh in the Red Sea and Og and Sihon east of the Jordan. That large plume of smoke that you saw a couple weeks ago, that's Jericho, burned to a crisp. That large plume of smoke that you saw last week is the city of Ai, completely gone. Joshua's now coming down this way. Let's hear some ideas, men. What do we do? The first leader would probably say, well, we should form an alliance with all of our other Canaanite brethren, with the Hivites and the Perizzites and all those other rites. Another leader would say, yeah, let's bring in the Philistines too. And the third leader, you've got one in every crowd, right? He'd say, guys, I know what we should do. Joshua's only interested in conquering the Canaanites. So let's dress up some ambassadors, make them look all ragged, and put stale food in their bags, and send them off and trick Joshua into signing a contract. Then when Joshua comes knocking on our nose, there's our contract. Joshua, you signed it. You can't destroy us. And you know the other leaders probably wanted to get a rope and string him up. That plan makes no sense. Unless you believe that Joshua is the sort of man who would rather stick by a contract than to pursue his bloodthirsty quest for power and domination. Contracts don't work with bloodthirsty dictators. I don't recall Saddam Hussein feeling bound by any of the sanctions the United Nations laid on him. Neville Chamberlain learned the hard way that Hitler's autograph doesn't mean diddly on a peace contract. The ink had barely dried on Obama's contract with Iran when Iran was off violating that contract. Oh, but maybe if we get ISIS to sign the contract, they'll stop beheading people? I don't think so. There's only one explanation that I see here. These guys knew that Joshua was the kind of man to place more value on a written contract than on a bloodthirsty quest for imperial dominance. This speaks again to the kind of humility that we see in Joshua that the king of Assyria did not have. And when Joshua's men found out that they'd been tricked and they wanted, Joshua's men wanted to kill the Gibeonites, that's only natural, but look at what Joshua says in verse 19. He says, no, we've sworn an oath, don't touch them lest the wrath of God fall on us. 
And when the remaining Canaanites found out about this contract that the Gibeonites were made, they banded together to go punish the Gibeonites for betraying them. The Gibeonites called Joshua and says, Joshua, you've got this contract with us. Come, to, come, come help us in this battle. God said, yes, go. Honor that contract. Fight for them. And that's the battle where uh, the hails, uh, God sends the hail to destroy the, uh, uh, the uh, Gibeonite enemies. And then Joshua commands the sun and the moon to stand still. These Gibeonites came to Joshua for a sanctuary and received mercy even though they came in false pretenses. Joshua was doing divine justice, but loving mercy and walking humbly. And if we had more time, we could explore more of the connections between Joshua and Jesus. Joshua is, after all, a type of Christ. The imagery and the connection between Joshua and Christ is breathtaking. Later on, at the end of, the, at the end of this age, Jesus will come and he will bring judgment into the land. We see that being mentioned in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 63. In Isaiah 53, we see the suffering servant. In Isaiah 63, we see just one of many references to the Savior who's coming in justice, judging the land, clearing it of his enemies, and providing a place for his people. Let's get back to Isaiah chapter 10 and the issue of the king's pride. Because we need to contemplate something that Isaiah is bringing to light. If it is a heinous crime of pride against God for man to think that his might and his strength or his wisdom have brought about this successful turn of military events. Let me ask you this. How much more insulting do you think it is to God if we think that our intelligence, our wisdom, our strength has brought about a turn in spiritual affairs in our lives? Do we dare think that through some great feat of strength or wisdom that we could lay hold of the truths of God and bring His salvation upon us through our strength? God forbid. As Brett pointed out last week, our cries for mercy, redemption, and salvation come about not because we wised up to God, but precisely because God, and according to His purpose and His plan and His will, poured out on us the spirit of supplication and grace. Listen to that verse in Zechariah 12.10 again. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Did you catch that? He first pours out his spirit on us, And then we respond to cries for mercy. That, by the way, is the same thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus. When Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, Hey, we know that you're from God because no one can do all these great things unless they come from God. Jesus just interrupts and says, Listen, you need to be born again. You can't see the things of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And that's a work that's done by the Holy Spirit in verse 8. In fact, Jesus kind of reprimands Nicodemus a little bit and says, You're a teacher of the Jews. You should know this. You should know that salvation comes by being first born again of the Holy Spirit. He was referring, I believe, to Ezekiel chapter 36, where we see the Spirit being poured out on God's people, and then they're able to do, uh, do um, God's will and live out their lives according to God's will. That's how dead and lost we are. If He doesn't pour out His Spirit out on us, we would never think to cry out for His mercy. It is a fact that all of us have sinned and cannot reach God's holy standard of perfection. It is a fact that our sins, no matter how small, 
make us worthy of eternal death and separation from God, that is hell. It is a fact that God will judge anyone and everyone who has sin. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. God, in his great love for us, even though we were sinners deserving of death, God sent his sinless son to take our sin and to die in our place. Again, just like Brett said last week, the only way to escape the judgment that's due for our sins is to run to the one who's coming to judge us all. If these things aren't clear to you, and if you want to understand them more fully, by all means, talk to me. I'll be up front after the service, or talk to one of our members. We would love to share this with you. Those that run to God for salvation and continue to lean on the Lord will see His sovereign plan come to fruition. Our passage today closes on this note, starting in verse 20. In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, that would be on the Assyrians, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as is decreed, in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell on Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod or lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed at their destruction. There's another passage later on in the Bible that talks about this This collision of man's desire and God's sovereignty over that. Romans chapter 9. I wasn't going to get too much into that chapter, but it is interesting to note that Paul in Romans chapter 9 quotes directly from Isaiah chapter 10 about the remnant returning. That the the judgment that God lays on the wicked is for the benefit of his people. For those of us who believe, yes, God will accomplish his will, but we dare not succumb to fatalism and presume that his sovereignty doesn't demand our zealous pursuit of his will. In other words, God's sovereignty is no excuse for our indifference. The parable of the the, uh, talents should should remove all doubt. The man who had the one talent and just sat on it, what did Jesus, what did the master say to him when the master returned? He said, you fool. And he had him thrown out of the kingdom. Yes, God is sovereign, but that's no excuse for us to be indifferent about that sovereignty. We are to pursue his will with zealous passion. And yes, while it is a fact that God will use his instruments to accomplish everything he sets out to do, at the same time we dare not lift ourselves up in pride, thinking that we did any good thing by our own wisdom or by our own strength. Listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He's speaking to believers. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God working in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So in closing, I need to ask you this. Where is your heart on these matters? Are you a stranger to the the things of God, thinking that you're living your life out on your own terms, with your own strength and your own wisdom? I would implore you, Run to the cross. Or are you humbly passionate about the will? If you are a believer, are you humbly passionate about the will of God and for the work that he has tasked you with? Those are questions that we need to take seriously. And I pray that we will find those answers in 
the Scriptures. May God bless the preaching of His Word.